Hi, everybody. Cora here. Welcome back to Rev on Air, the Rev on Bear podcast, a place for sustainable storytelling with founders, activists, creatives, and phenomenal individuals who are paving the way for a more conscious future for us all. Today, I'm really thrilled to welcome an incredible young woman who is showing us all what it can mean to be a climate activist as individuals and as communities. Elizabeth Watuti isn't yet out of her teenage years, but she has already started a tree planting and food growing foundation in a local school in Kenya and founded the Green Generation Initiative, which has been working on a range of solutions to address the challenges of the climate emergency, deforestation and biodiversity loss, eco-anxiety and the ecological grief of a society disconnected from nature. I first learned of Elizabeth when she gave one of the most poignant speeches I heard at COP26 late last year. As she spoke of the suffering of her people and the animals who are already ravaged by the effects of climate change in her native Kenya, she asked the audience to open their hearts to the idea of feeling some of the pain that others are feeling to allow ourselves to feel true empathy from others and realize that our actions and our fates are all intertwined, even as some parts of the world are more affected now than we are. It was a heart-wrenching speech that, for me, overpowered any of the talks given by world and business leaders who continue to support fossil fuel and other destructive industries. I have always been a huge believer in the power of individual action and accountability when it comes to the climate crisis, and Elizabeth is one of the strongest leaders I have found here. Today, we discuss how she finds the resilience to always be moving forward, what her community efforts have achieved, and also, again, she will ask us to open our hearts to understand what is happening in places like Kenya, where climate change is so desperately affecting people who had nothing to do with creating it. This is ultimately one of those conversations that offers as much hope as it does the reality of where we are today, and I hope that Elizabeth's words will leave you feeling as moved as they did me. Now, over to her. Thank you, Elizabeth, so much for taking the time um, from your very busy schedule to come on and speak to us today. And, you know, I always sort of start at the same place just by asking our guests very much about how, you know, the surroundings and culture that they grew up shaped them. And I know that you grew up in Kenya and you started with your activist work at such a young age. So can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and sort of what drew you into this world of environmentalism and social justice and all these things that you are doing. Thank you so much for having me the podcast. I grew up in the most forested region in Kenya. And I always say that my activism has been shaped by being able to have that space with nature and being able to connect directly with nature and in the process developing a strong deep love for nature. And this is because as a child, I spent so much time close to the trees and being able to drink from clean streams, which are things that we rarely see in the world today because all of these resources have continued to change and be degraded over time. But for me, this was a special moment as a child being able to develop that love. And you can tell from every child today that children are very much drawn and connect to things like butterflies, the flowers around. And when that love is nurtured and really build upon that they grow up to be environmental enthusiasts. And I think that was the same thing with me because along the way, I also began to feel the pain of nature caused by environmental degradation at some point when I visited this forest that I loved so much. And I went there to check on the trees that we had planted as children to see how they were doing. But I remember getting there and seeing 
tree stumps and tree logs just at the entrance of the same forest, which means that maybe some or all the trees that we had planted as children had been cut down. And I could not understand why anyone would destroy such a beautiful forest. So for me, that was a moment of anger and pain at the same time, because when you love something, you will protect and fight for it. And that's when I decided to do something about challenges like deforestation and climate change, because I also realized that these challenges like deforestation were also fueling climate change and vice versa. And so I really was strongly moved by being able to grow up in such a place and also being able to witness these challenges. But again, also being able to turn my anger into a hunger to want to do something about these challenges and being inspired by great people like the late Professor Ngare Mathai, who was the member of parliament in that same home region. She was really great and, and a great environmental icon in the African continent. She won the Nobel Peace Prize for her efforts. I mean, yes, it, and it's amazing, you know, and I, I like that you bring up that that when you love something, you'll you'll fight for it. And I've been thinking a lot about how we need to find everybody's touch points for the things that they love in nature to, to sort of help with the, the climate crisis. And, you know, I, I feel like, so from, from a very like young age, obviously you started this and, and I'm just curious to know how, how you found it within yourself to, you know, start organizing. And I, I feel like the things that you've done have been very, um, you, you're very much in a leadership position, even from a young age. And we are watching leaders all over the world who are older, who are in, you know, positions of great power financially. And, and they're doing nothing that is like, you know, what I would consider real leadership. In fact, they are destroying the planet and letting people down and doing horrible things. So how did you cultivate this this idea of being a leader within yourself and and whether or not you think of yourself as such just how you've gone about finding the strength i suppose to to do so much and, and action so much i would say it has been a journey because being able to be on the front line to stand up for humanity to stand up for the future of this planet it has to be something that you keep reminding yourself every day. It has to be something that you learn and stick with it the whole time, that you don't get to a point where you start to believe certain things. It's about standing up for the truth every time, and it's about standing up for the right thing and standing up for the kind of world that we want to live in. And that's a world that has a safe future and a livable world. And for me, this journey did not stop as a child being able to love this forested place and being able to really connect with nature directly but it also continued in because i remember when i was in primary school i was a member of the wildlife club and these are places that continue to shape me as a child through the education we would get being able to visit the forest being able to even plant trees at tender age and also moving forward when I joined high school, I remember I revived the Wildlife and Environment Club. That was a different name in, the high, in my high school. And at this point in time, we were growing so many trees in school. And I knew that I wanted to be an environmentalist because this was the time when I really also continued to want to understand much more about climate change issues, to get much more about 
also why Professor Ngai Mathai was really so much into saving the planet. I really wanted to know why she was in this fight because she was a great inspiration. And being able to know that she was fighting not because of anything that she was going to gain, but because of the next generations. And also today, being able to benefit from some of the green spaces that she fought so hard for. Karua Forest is one of the forests that I visit every weekend. And I can't help but thank her for all the things that she ever did. And that would be the kind of world I would want to live for the next generations as well. So it was a journey. And when I got to the university again, I really wanted to continue to understand more about these issues. And so I took up a course in environmental studies and community development. And again, while still in the university, I decided to found my own organization that would nurture more young people to love nature and to be environmentally conscious. So it was something that was deep within me to do something for my community, to do something for my country. And at the end of the day, to do something for the world because I realized that not everybody gave this much value and appreciation for nature as it's supposed to be, that not everybody had that same love for nature. You know, you would ask people why they're cutting down trees and they don't see the value of those trees. And for me, seeing a world that is so much disconnected to nature, I thought to myself that this is a big assignment. We have to get all these people to love nature. We have to get all these people to understand that we are doing this for our sake, for the sake of humanity, for the sake of having a livable planet for the next generation. And being able to found this organization, I decided that I, am, I was going to start with children because that's how it all started with me. That's why I don't need anyone to tell me to go to the streets because something is happening to our forest or something is happening, people are still burning down fossil fuels. And I just need, to know that it's happening and, and it's deep within me to do something. And I thought this is the kind of world that we want to have, that we need to have, a world that is full of people who are conscious of the environment. And I would say, I definitely do see myself as a leader in that way because leadership is not having a duty imposed upon you to take up a role in conservation, but it's being able to identify with challenges and then stepping up and having that natural call to action that comes from deep within you to do something because if anyone else is in that position of power and is not and never moved to do something, then they're not leaders in any way. Well, that is that is exactly right. And, you know, it leads me to, you know, the speech that you gave at COP this year, which is actually where I, I learned of you and and your phenomenal work. And, you know, you said, I'm just going to read it out for people that might not have, you know, have heard what you said that, um, you said that my truth will only land if you have the grace to fully listen. My story will only move you if you can open up your heart. And, you know, to me, this was so emblematic of, of so many of the issues that we've got in, you know, I, I hate to say like the developed world or the Western world. I don't know what we call it to differentiate that makes, makes sense. But, you know, there are so many people let's say kind of in, in Europe and America where I am who, you know, they're not bad people, but they don't recognize that their lifestyles are fundamentally changing things in places where we can't see. And whether or not they're bad or good people, you know, that's a debate for another day. But I think often it's just that we don't 
often open our minds or our hearts to other people who live in a very different way than us. And, and it's this idea of, of global connection and empathy that I'm very interested in because we don't exist in a bubble anymore. I mean, arguably we never did, but the world is more connected than it's ever been. But then sometimes I feel like it's less connected than it's ever been, you know, like I'm here back in the United States of America and it just feels like there is disconnect in every way, politically, with sustainability, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I know you might not have the answer for this because you, you gave the speech and you wrote those words, but how do you feel about creating connection and, and storytelling? Because I know that's something that you just mentioned you're really focusing on is getting, getting these stories of people and what is happening elsewhere in the world to the forefront. So, so can you talk a little bit about how you're doing that and how you're trying to get this sense of connection across to people? I would say there's something about love and compassion in the world that we're living in right now, that if we do not act from a point of our deeper human sense, it will be difficult for us to make the right decisions. And we have to get back down to humanity and embrace the fact that yes, we are in this same storm, we all are facing the climate crisis, but we're not in the same boats. There are people that are going through the worst impacts and there are people that have the least capacity to adapt and there are people that have the least amount of resources to adapt. But unless we feel this in ourselves, no matter what people are trying to say or get us to take action, like I said, the ability to work must come from deep within ourselves that nobody can force the leaders to take action. It has to come from deep within themselves. But then this can only as well, very well be triggered through storytelling. And I do believe in the power of having that emotional connection with people who are facing the worst impacts of the crisis. Because like I mentioned, we are humans at the end of the day. And being able to give that space and that connection with people who are deeply facing the worst impacts, that's the only way we will be able to understand that we need to make a difference. But then not listening to these people or even giving them that space, like I really wanted to hold that silence for the people whose stories are not being heard, for the people whose cries are also not being felt, because I believe that we are living in a world where we're also facing the crisis of listening and the crisis of feeling. We're no longer listening to one another. We're no longer feeling each other's pain. We are no longer understanding and feeling the heartbreaks that have gone into the injustices caused by the climate crisis. And unless we get back down to our deep sense of humanity and take these issues seriously, it's going to be difficult for us to move a step forward. So the reason why I was really appealing to people's hearts is because I believe that for us to tackle the climate crisis, we also need to deal with this crisis of listening and feeling. We have to listen to one another and we also have to feel the impacts. And we don't have to be there physically. We don't have to really believe in that climate change is happening because it's happening where you are. There are people who are facing the worst impacts and you may not be able to see these things, but listening to their voices from a personal perspective then gets us to a point where we can connect with these people and be able to make decisions not out of selfish deeds but being selfless and putting others into consideration because then that's why we will go to these meetings and 
you know, like the COP, come up with packages that are not in favor of people who are facing the worst impacts right now, because we are yet to feel their pain. We are yet to listen to them. They're not even in the rooms where these decisions are being made. So how can we say that we are solving a crisis without the people who are on the front line of the impacts in the room and without their voices, without us getting, you know, opening our hearts to listen and feel the pain that they have to go through. So for me, I do believe strongly that we can change the way we also communicate and the way we make decisions, that it doesn't have to always be we are deciding because you know countries need to develop, countries need money. It's not about money anymore. It's about people's survival. It's about the loss of lives and livelihoods. It's about making sure that our people and our planet are ahead of profit because at the end of the day, it's always said that you know there's going to be no money on a dead planet. So we have to put our priorities right, but then this will to act has to come from deep within. And again, opening your heart is not something that one can learn through a six minute speech. It has to be a practice that every person has to keep reminding themselves each and every day that we, you know, people say that we are in this together, but sometimes the way in which you're making decisions, it doesn't seem as though we are in this together. There are people that are still struggling with the Western parts, but if we want to change everything, then we have to bring everyone on board and we have to make sure that we are making the right decisions out of love, out of compassion. And we can never forget that we are humans and you know, bring back that deep sense of humanity into this kind of conversation because it's beyond the science. There are people right now who are facing the worst impacts and may not know so much about the science, but they are suffering each and every day. So how do we humanize the climate crisis? Because that's exactly what it is right now. And it's, it's happening to so many people. So I think it's really important for us to focus on listening and feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And that's part of, you know, my reason for running this podcast is just so that so many people can listen and, and learn. And, and with that being, you know, born in mind, Elizabeth, I'd love to say, you know, I try to keep things optimistic on the podcast so people don't feel too depressed. But I would like, whilst I've got you to maybe explain a little bit about what you see on the ground. I mean, you spoke about it a bit, you know, in your speech and, and you speak about it a lot on, on Instagram, you know, but people are, you know, starving for water right now. Like animals are dying right now. Rivers are running dry right now. And if you're in the middle of London or, you know, you know, I was, I was actually having a conversation with somebody in California the other day. And she was like, you know, we are starting to see it in California. We don't have water. Uh, we have wildfires. She was like, and it does, it, it changes everything when you kind of start to experience it yourself. But for those of us who maybe haven't had that experience firsthand yet, can you just speak a little bit to what you have seen by being there on the ground? So we have had a lot of extreme and unpredictable weather patterns for the past years. And these are things that have continued to really affect our way of living. And in one of the ways is the fact that we heavily depend on agriculture. The food that we consume is food produced through agriculture. The food that is also uh, being imported to other countries, it's the same thing. And uh, what happens is that when 
the rainfall patterns, for example, become unpredictable. The farmers no longer know when to plant or even when to harvest. And that's where the crops begin to fail. And then crops fail, then we have food insecurity. We have a hunger crisis. And most especially in countries that are arid and semi-arid, these are places that can even go for so many months without water because the drought seasons have also become so much prolonged. And just recently we had over 2 million Kenyans that are facing tranny-related starvation. And this is an issue that is still ongoing in some of these parts that are still waiting for rainfall. And uh, what happens is that even when they have rainfall, then it leads to extreme floods. Their houses are being swept away. Their schools are being submerged with water and the children can no longer be able to access school. So it is a challenge that continues to impact their day-to-day -day living. And these are not things that you can tell people to adapt to because then they don't know where the next meal is going to come to, to come from tomorrow. They don't know, they don't have a roof over their head once their houses are swept away. So these are people that want immediate action at the moment. And I think that's where we talk about climate justice. We have to put into consideration that there are people who are not waiting for the impacts to hit them. They are already facing the worst kind of anxiety because they've already been hit by the impacts, they're counting losses, they're counting damages. People have lost their livestock. And in most of these communities, livestock is one of the things that really helps them educate their children. It's their main source of living. And when drought hits and their livestock have got no water to drink, they've traveled for long distances trying to get pasture and water for their livestock, but then they don't get. So it ends up being, you know, dead animals on the roads. And this is not something that anyone would want to live by. This is not something, you know, it's not a kind of life that anybody would want. And this is livestock, but also they also do not have enough food to eat. So these are people that need immediate action. But again, one of the most positive things is the fact that in some of these communities, we have groups that are also mobilizing and organizing, trying to find solutions locally led to try and find ways that they can help themselves because health is not coming. And that's the saddest part of it. We are trying to get leaders to understand that these people need to be supported right now. We need the aspect of climate finance. We need the aspect of climate justice to recognize the rights of these people because they did not contribute to this crisis for them to be to be the ones that have to face the worst impact. But then they are also the ones who are leading on the front line to find solutions, to work among themselves, to try and get ways in which they can be able to overcome the next drought season, to get ways in which they can be able to get water in the next month. And also being able to see women who have to walk miles and miles to get water for their children, to get food for their children, is not something that anyone would really be happy to see. And the reason why I had to paint that picture of that lady from Samburu County, it was from Samburu County in Kenya, is because it's something that really left me feeling very heartbroken and sad because even though we gave them water for that day, that woman had to walk back home for another 12 miles with her three children. And the next day, the same thing, she has to walk back again to try and look for water. But even when she finds water, it's not clean. She has to hand dig a well 
from a stream that dried up a long time ago and that water is definitely not safe for, for consumption. And so even though we gave them water to drink for that day, my question was always, where will they get water tomorrow, the next day, the next month after? So these are challenges that they are facing every day. And so we need sustainable ways to be able to support these people on a long-term basis that they do not have to go through all this. And being able to get people to understand the situation as it is, I think it would be important that we listen, we have these people in the rooms because listening to them is also, is also different because these are people who are sharing heartfelt messages of how this is making them feel and what they're going through. But still they're being left out, they're still watching from the sidelines, indigenous communities, people who come from these frontline communities. But I'm very sure with the kind of pressure that's going on from civil societies and young people, these are things that are going to change. Yeah, well, I'm very glad that you feel hopeful about that because it, there is it, there's only one way and it is for things to start changing. And, you know, with that being in, you know, with that very much in mind, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your organization, uh, GGI, that is replanting trees and you know, and, and some of the positive effects that you've seen. I mean, I was sort of looking into it and it looks like you guys have done incredible work. And whilst I agree with you that things will change because I think leaders are starting to have so much pressure on them that they're realizing they can't hide from the issues they've, they've created for much longer. But equally, I think finding out what individual action can do and, and in the meantime, all of us need to start doing more and, and finding ways to help in our own community. And I love what you've done. So can you tell us a little bit about about your organization and, and the successes with that? Yes, so it's one of the ways to redefine activism as well. And to remind people that young people are not just influencing how others are choosing to treat the climate crisis, but they are also doing the work on the ground with their communities, trying to make a difference. But then we cannot do it alone. We need the leaders and everyone else who has a bigger capacity, people in power, people who have much more resources to join in. And that's the only way we're going to make a bigger difference because at the end of the day, it's about collective action. So when I founded the initiative, it was to be able to create a generation of environmentally conscious individuals. And this was through nurturing young people and communities through ground nature-based solutions. And one of the key campaigns that I started was adopt a tree campaign to get children in schools in my country to plant and adopt a tree each in their school compound. And this is because I also realized that nature-based solutions in a bigger perspective are being used also by big businesses and corporations to hide away from the real problem. You know, they do not want to cut emissions because they're planting trees of which the trees are not even surviving at the end of the day. So the challenge was how can, can we stop planting trees and start growing trees because impact is not about telling the world that you have planted five million trees it's about how many of the five million trees got to grow up to maturity and that is why this campaign of adopt a tree came up because it's not just about putting that tree on the ground and hoping that it's somehow going to find its way and become a huge tree. There's a process that goes into it. And you can imagine being able to even do this in the dry areas. These are trees that need a lot of care because you cannot say that you're depending on the rainfall in places where there is no rainfall, in places where 
climate change has really affected the weather patterns. So it's really not as easy as it is to grow a tree to maturity because you're struggling with weather patterns that you cannot even predict. We used to know like April was a rainy season that was everyone was being encouraged to plant trees. But now when it's April, you know, you plant trees, rains for like three days, there's no there's no there's no more rains, and then you have to figure out how the trees are going to grow. So we decided to do all this at the same time, whether it's raining or not, there is a criteria to make sure that these trees grow up to maturity. And the idea was to make sure that the children are also being able to love nature because we say that when you love something, you will definitely develop a natural call to action and you will fight for it. And we really strongly believe in that power of the love and compassion for nature and for the people in saving the planet. And so, Along the way, we also realized that these children are greatly being impacted and suffering from the impacts of climate change, especially when it comes to food insecurity. They're the ones that have to spend a whole day in school without a meal. And so we thought to ourselves, how can we make sure that this project also supports them with a nutritious source of food? So we started establishing food forests in schools where we pick a designated corner in the school compound and then we plant mixed species of fruit trees. And they're mixed because every fruit tree has got its own season. So that means that in and out of seasons, there's something nutritious for the children to eat every day. And that also complements the school's feeding program and especially for the public schools here in my country. And also this has been an experiential way of getting the children to understand that they have a voice and to understand that they can also be a part of the solution and that every decision that is being made today is going to impact them tomorrow. So we have to empower them and remind them that yes, they have a voice to really remind the leaders that we cannot be planting trees in our school compound and the next day we are watching big operations cutting down big forests outside the school compound. So these are the two way things to at the same time, encourage individual responsibility, but also system change by empowering the young people and the children to understand that they do have a voice and their voices and their actions matter in the conversations that, that are happening in the world today. Because one of the challenges we've been facing, uh, apart from the aspect of funding, is the fact that we are living in a system that seems to be stuck and working against young people and people who are really also working on projects that can be considered as individual responsibility because the efforts of these children and the young people are being undermined in so many ways because they're trying to change, to green their schools, trying to make things work for their communities. But again, like I've mentioned, out of their school compounds, they see people who claim to be leaders doing the opposite. And yet we are trying to create a generation of people who are environmentally conscious and which means they are the leaders anyway, because they are doing the right things. But then seeing countries who still also continue to ban fossil fuels, continue to invest in actions that degrade our high carbon sinks, it's something that continues to undermine such efforts that we are trying to run with young people, which should not be the case. So system change and individual responsibility has to go hand in hand. And so, so far we've been able to grow over 30,000 tree seedlings with these children. And I'm saying grow because these are trees that we can account for their maturity. And also we've been able to nurture over 20,000 school children through this experiential learning process. And 
we believe in the fact that the children can get to understand and feel empowered enough if it's an experiential way of learning that when we tell them about pollution, we will take them physically to a stream that is polluted and they will be able to see what is happening to the stream just next to their school compound. And some of the questions the children ask us is like, who did this? What can we do about it? Which tells you that they are ready to change the fate of the future. They are ready to make a difference. And what the world needs to do right now is to join in and not really work against such efforts of young people who are the ones who are being greatly impacted by the challenge of inaction because that's that's what is affecting young people and uh, the other last thing that we're focusing on right now is that we are starting up models still in the same process of making sure that we are also part and parcel of helping my country attain and surpass a 10 percent forest cover because we are still at 7.3 percent which is below the un required minimum and uh, we are also trying to start up green school models whereby we want to have a holistic approach that has structures in schools that contain waste management corners an open space and park for the kids to study when it's very hot in the afternoon and the food forests a mini tree nursery as well and also the a green fence. So these are projects that we really envision that we can have them spread across the country. And that's why this year, one of my biggest focus is to scale up the Green Generation Initiative through partnerships and collaborations and trying to also mobilize resources because some of these things are projects that you need resources to be able to actually establish and get them running and benefiting the children and communities around as well. Yeah. Well, I am going to link um, link to your organization um, in these show notes, and I would encourage everyone who can help support you to do so because it's phenomenal work you're doing, and it, I believe, could be a model for many other places in the world where they're going through the exact same things and would benefit from this. And, and as you so rightly say, children are bearing the brunt of so many of our issues when they have done nothing to deserve it. So let's let's all kind of, you know, get on board with doing something for them um, in supporting you. And then I guess one of my final questions for you, Elizabeth, is just, I suffer from this, so I'm sure a million people also do, but how, you know, when there's so much bad news and there's so many horrible things happening in the world and you're feeling a little bit dejected, how, how do you stay motivated? Like, you know, how do you find that that force within yourself to keep going and not let the sort of despair overtake you really i love to be practical and actually share um, a situation that made me feel that way and this was sometime last year when we decided to to celebrate Valentine's Day differently by showing love to the trees. And we were running this campaign called For the Love of Trees. And this was through a coalition called Daima that I coordinate that focuses on protecting urban green spaces in Nairobi. And so there were so many trees that had been marked with an X so that they would be felled to pave way for the construction of the Nairobi Expressway. And so on Valentine's Day, we decided to go out with friends and so many children and young people to hang love hearts with very personalized messages to the trees, messages like my survival, you know, your survival depends on my existence, messages like I give you oxygen, let me live. 
these are messages that, you know, the tree is speaking to everybody who is passing by the streets to see that these trees need to survive. They don't need to be cut down. And there was a lot of traction for the activity we did and people joined in only to realize two weeks later that still the developers went ahead and brought down the trees. And what we were receiving were pictures of the tree stumps. And I remember tweeting, you know, like a picture of before and after, you know, before was us hanging the love hearts and then after the tree stumps along the highway, it was a really beautiful street and so many trees were lost along the way. And this is something that would make any person give up, you know, like we were trying to speak to people's heart to appeal, but it looks like nobody was listening to us. It looked like we were just speaking to ourselves. It looked like nobody cared about anything that we were trying to say. They still went ahead and cut the trees anyway. And uh, for me, I think in such in instances, what gives me hope is the reason why I'm fighting. Because I'm fighting out of the love that I have for the planet. And one of the things I stopped doing is I, I stopped hoping, like hoping that things are going to get better, hoping that things are going to change. But instead, I chose to just continue leaning on that love for the people, that love for the planet, because then that's what keeps you going. And even if something happens, that's something that you learn to stick with the whole time. But again, if you stick and lean on hope, it's easy that you will be disappointed at some point. It's easy that you might you might lose it. You know, you might lose the hope at some point, but I think the love for people and the planet is something that it's really hard to just forget about, especially if it's something that forms the, the basis of your foundation as to why you are actually in this fight. And so I think being able to redefine why we are in this fight is something that really would help us keep going. And the other second thing is just knowing that I am not alone in this fight. There are so many amazing young people in my country, in my community, in Africa, around the world that are doing amazing things and standing in solidarity because times when we have challenges in my country, I know that there are activists that I can reach out to and they can help spread the world even in their own countries. And all these movements that are coming up right now, it shows that so many people are rising up to the challenge, so many people want to make this planet better and habitable. And I think we, the people who have those open hearts are the ones who are going to make that change happen. And just knowing that every day, it definitely keeps me going because it's, it's different from when you feel alone. So I think everyone else who feels that, and I know there was a report by Avast that shows that 75% of young people actually are afraid of how the future is going to look like as a result of climate change. And they're rightful and it's okay to feel that way and it's okay to also recognize those feelings and one of the things that I learned to do is to actually acknowledge my feelings about how I feel things are going wrong and the first step of being able to carry on is to acknowledge the feelings and then after acknowledging the feelings being able to turn those reactions and those feelings into actions they should be able to be the fuel that keeps you going, the fuel that makes you do something, that because they're destroying this forest, I'm not going to give up without a fight, that because uh, you know, the leaders have chosen not to do something, I am not going to give up without a fight. I have a voice, I have you know, whatever it is that I have within me, I will step up and use it. 
as a fuel to keep me going. And I think to me, that's the most important thing that can keep anyone going and everyone who is facing uh, or experiencing anxiety, everyone who feels as though they do not have so much to contribute to a solution. I think it's important to know that every voice and every action does matter, however little you may feel that it is. It eventually, it does matter because if we have to change everything, we need everyone. So everyone has to contribute their bit of it. And then those small acts multiplied by millions of us are going to make the difference. Yeah. Well, that that is a beautiful sentiment and I couldn't agree with you more. And so I'm going to ask my final question, Elizabeth, which I think will will speak nicely to this. But since we've just come into 2022, I wanted to ask you, what is the thing you're most excited about this year and the thing you're feeling the most optimistic about for, for this upcoming year so that we can end on a really positive high note? <laughs> well, um, I, I'm really optimistic that this is an year of people power. I mean, I can't help but always think about the energy that I saw among the people out of the blue zone at COP26. So many civil societies and young people stepping up and out on the streets, even when it was heavily raining. And I think people do get it out there. And this is what really is going to help us move forward in this new year. And even looking at the policies and the packages that we have right now, you know, the current policies, everybody knows that, you know, they're still taking the world towards like a 2.7 degrees of warming. And uh, looking at the big win that is said in Glasgow, that was that leaders promised to come back next year to revisit their level of ambition. It is important to note that if anything is going to change, they will definitely need to feel much, much greater pressure. And that pressure is going to come from the people. So for me, that is where my year, you know, my highlight for the year is I know that people are really working towards making sure that we get our leaders to do what must be done because we cannot keep having, you know, cops where the leaders come to try and get it right when people are still suffering from the worst impacts. And I think we are still getting more and more people to care and the movement is growing. And I think it is going to be a really powerful mass movement of people who want to see change. And there's no longer anywhere for the leaders to hide away from, from the truth and hide away from accountability because people really have stepped up to the challenge. Yeah, that's so true. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. That is, um, that's a wonderful note to end on and a reminder of everyone listening to everyone listening that the individual action and, and power and pressure and all of these things, they are what we make them. So, you know, you are a great role model in this way. So thank you just so much for all that you've done.